Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. ...that the denarius itself was a violation of the second commandment. The second commandment, which says we should not make graven images of anything under the earth or anything on the earth or anything in heaven. And what is graven onto these coins? The face of Caesar. So the very fact that the Pharisees have one of these coins in their pocket shows their hypocrisy, shows that they're not even following their own rules. But Jesus asked for it. And he looks at it and he says... Whose face and name's on there? I, I can just hear the Pharisees. They, they can see this coming, right? It's, it's Caesar's. <laughs> Caesar's name. You know, like when you, when you catch your kid in a lie and they know it and they, yeah. It's Caesar's. And Jesus says, okay, good. Give Caesar his stuff. Give to God his stuff. He's exposing their hypocrisy in the minute, in that moment. And not only that, he's showing us the first brand of stuffed shirt, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not simply when our lives don't line up with the things that we believe. It is that, but that's sort of the kind that we all experience. If we're honest, none of our lives perfectly line up with what we believe. This is why we, we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus responding to the man who says, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. But this is something more. Hypocrisy is when we actively promote one brand of righteousness, one style of righteousness, one particular set of sins in order to cover up our failing in another. It's when we say our sins are okay and the sins of those people are bad and become self-righteous about it. To put it another way, hypocrisy is using religion to cover up our shame. It's using religion to cover up our shame. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, any church, you've seen this at work. You've seen churches that preach against some sins, but not others. You've seen churches that support certain causes, but are quiet on others. Now, some of that is simply selection and pass and passion. But when we use that selectivity to give ourselves a pass on the sins that we're not willing to cop to, that's when we get in to the territory of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. That's when I get into the territory of pharisaical hypocrisy because I do this. Look, I'm like contractually obliged to do a lot of Christian things because pastor. And like I have to do some of those things. But when I begin to use those things to justify my disdain for others, which I do at times, all of a sudden, I am guilty of the same sin of the Pharisees. Whenever, whenever you use the Christian ethics of patience and kindness in order to excuse your sins, you're guilty too. Whenever you use your love of truth to shout down others in anger, ding, 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 stuff shirt Phariseeism. 
Jesus warns us against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees when they come to test him. So who's next? Who is Bob Barker? I guess it's Drew, Drew Carey. Thank you. Uh, Drew Carey now. You know, Sadducees, come on down. It's your turn to take a swing. And so their hypocrisy is evident from the beginning, right? Mark tells us they're about to ask a question about the resurrection and the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. But we're going to see something more than just hypocrisy here. Jesus is going to show us something else with the Sadducees. So they don't believe in the resurrection and yet they come to Jesus with this like arcane, complex question about like a thing they don't even believe in, resurrection, and a thing that's like an obscure Old Testament law, lever at marriage, which they don't even tell people to practice. They set up this super theological hypothetical question, and here's what it was. There was this tradition and commandment in the Old Testament that's called lever at marriage. And lever at marriage was if a man married a woman and they didn't have a child— and he died, and she was widowed and childless, her brother would marry her and raise children in, her, in his brother's name. And the reason for this was the Old Testament social safety net. There was this thing called the year of Jubilee, where every 50 years in Israel, all debts were canceled. Didn't matter if you owed somebody five bucks or five million bucks. In the 50th year, it was canceled. And not only that, but all land would go back to the families who had it at the time of Joshua. It prevented generational poverty from setting in in any way. Now, unfortunately, we never read in the Old Testament that the Israelites actually practiced this, but leveret marriage was because of this. If your family's land was dependent on that land being passed down generation to generation, if somebody was going to die childless, they would have nobody to pass that land to, and all of a sudden there's a problem. So this leveret marriage rule was built to, to sort of fix that problem to make sure that God's system could keep going. And so they asked Jesus, well, what would happen? What would happen, Jesus, if like, you know, seven brothers tried seven times and then they all died and then, you know, they went to heaven? Whose wife is it? Whose wife is it, Jesus? Hmm? Riddle me that. You know, just the, the, there's a snottiness to this question here. And Jesus' response tells us exactly what the problem is here. Look at verse 24. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. That is your problem. That's the reason why you're wrong. You don't know the power of God because you think that the life to come is going to be like this life. That is such a small view of the power of God. You think God is just going to raise us up and it's going to just be like earth 2.0. No, Jesus tells us a few words about the kingdom, but then he's telling them that the life that is to come cannot even compare to what this life is. Jesus is saying in the same way that you can't compare a caterpillar to a butterfly, you can't compare this life to the life that is to come. Is there the same DNA in a caterpillar and butterfly? I'm pretty sure. Didn't Google that, but I'm 99% sure that there's no DNA changes between caterpillar phase and butterfly phase. But the, the glory and beautiful of a pudgy caterpillar does not compare to the glory and beauty of a monarch butterfly. 
so it is with this life and the life that is to come. The same power that can turn those hungry, hungry caterpillars into those beautiful butterflies will work in us. But Paul says, I has not seen or our hearts cannot imagine the wonders that God has prepared for us and the ages that are to come. Jesus says they have a small-minded view of the power of God. They have a failure of nerve to believe in all that God can do. But not only that, they fail to understand the scriptures. Jesus knows that they are coming at him without believing in the scriptures. And so Jesus points them back to the scriptures. And it's kind of interesting. The, the idea of chapters and verses in the Bible is something that came far after the time of Jesus. So did you notice the way that Jesus referenced Exodus chapter three? You know, the story about the bush. It's like a chapter heading, you know, the bush story. Y'all know that one, right? It's the story of Moses and the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And he uses that story to teach them. When God comes to Moses at the burning bush, who does he say that he is? He says, I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Abraham. In reverse order. Sorry about that. And when Moses asks his name, he says, I am who I am. And Jesus looks at the Sadducees and says, if you'd read the scripture carefully, you would know this. If you had paid any attention, if you tried to engage God through his word, you would have been able to see this, but you haven't because you are the proud owners of stuffed shirt number two, negligence of scripture. If we're to truly follow God with our whole hearts, if we're to leave behind the hollowness of external religion, we have to give our attention and time to God's word. The Sadducees didn't. They talked a lot about God, but it doesn't seem like they read much of the Bible. And so let's try again. Scribes, you're up next. What do you got for us? Scribes were the, the lawyers of the time with all of the good things and bad things that come along with that. You know, because there's a lot of bad things about lawyers. And they came up to Jesus and they want a ruling. They want Jesus to, to give a ruling for them. Jesus, in all of the Old Testament, in all 517 commands of the Torah, What's the most important? What's the most important commandment? And so Jesus says, I'll do you one better. I'll give you the first most important and the second most important. First, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6. This is what the people of Israel would recite as they woke up and before they went to bed. It was called the Shema. It was the Lord our God is one and we should love him with our whole heart and all of our strength and mind. And then Jesus says, and the second most is kind of like it, because the second most comes from Leviticus 19, and it says you should love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe actually agrees. This scribe seems to be a little bit of a standout. The scribe agrees with Jesus, and he takes it a step further. He says, you are right in saying that God is one and we should love him with our whole heart and strength. And you are right to say that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. In fact, that's more important than any sacrifice we could offer. And Jesus 
sees this and Jesus says, yeah, you're starting to get it. You're starting to understand what's happening here. You are not far from the kingdom of God. But then Jesus says, but this scribe is an exception because he proceeds to say, I've got a question for you, scribes. You've all read Psalm 110. Psalm 110, which tells us about the Messiah that is coming. Who does the Psalm say is the, the Messiah is? And they would all have answered, oh, he's the son of David. It's the son of David. And Jesus says, okay, then how come David calls him my Lord? If he's his son, he would be inferior to David. What's going on there? And they marveled. They didn't know. They didn't understand. Jesus is saying your, your conception, your imagination of what the Messiah will be is too limited. They can't imagine that the Messiah is going to be anything but a biological descendant of David. But Jesus wants him to drink in the fact that the Messiah was, yes, a descendant of David, but he is so much more than that. So much more that even David knew that he would be his Lord. What Jesus goes after with these scribes is this sort of arrogance. Because as soon as they kind of fumble with this question, Jesus says, look, you've got to beware of the scribes. They walk around town and everybody knows who the scribes are because they wear the scribe shirts. Everybody knows who the scribes are because you can always find them in the front row at church. Sorry. You can always find them at the best seats at the dinner table. You can always find them. And they like it when you say, hey, scribe, I know you. And give them high fives in the street. They love it. But there's something else going on. They're also defrauding people of their money. They're pretentious in their prayers. The scribes were arrogant. They were arrogant. They used religious language and, and religious deeds to cloak over their selfish, lang or, I'm sorry, their selfish motives and vanity. And we would never do that. We would never use religious language to cover over our selfish motives. We would never think that our knowledge of the Bible gives us a couple free sins here and there. We would never approach God in arrogance, which is good. I'm glad none of us would ever struggle with that because, because the Bible just says that there's a greater condemnation for those folks. So thankfully, none of us have to deal with that. And that's for those other people. I'm actually violating the hypocrisy stuff shirt by telling you about the arrogance stuff shirt. No, we can see that arrogance in ourselves. We can see that arrogance. So what's the solution? What's our way out of all of this? If we're being honest, most of us have a closet full of stuffed shirts in our hearts. We don't have to look hard to find arrogance. It's not too uh, long of perusing through there to find religious hypocrisy. It's not difficult for us to see that we act like the Sadducees in the way that we neglect God's word. Jesus ends this chapter with a story about a widow who has nothing. And as he watches these people come into the treasury, come past the offering boxes, he sees people giving 
vast sums of money. And these, these offering boxes had, uh, they looked like the top of trumpets that funneled all of the coins down into the treasury. And so when you gave a lot of money, everybody could see it because it was just, clang, 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 you know, I mean, you know, imagine a metal trumpet and you're dumping your coins in there. And this woman comes up with two coins that together equaled a penny. And she drops them in. And Jesus says, that's it. That's the one. That's the one you should be paying attention to. That's the one who you should be like. Why? Because she had given all that she had. This was all that she had. She had given it all away because she understood the overwhelming grace of Jesus. Think back to the parable of the tenants where we started this morning. The parable of the tenants, there's a question that we didn't ask as we walked through there, which is this. If every single messenger that was sent to the tenants by the owner had been beaten or killed, why? Why would he risk it with his beloved only son? Because that's exactly who God is. Because that's exactly how much he loves us. That even though he knew, even though God knew when he sent Jesus, what would happen? Even though Jesus knew as he was being sent what would happen, he still came. And that sort of love, that sort of overwhelming grace changes us. Mercy towards us, even when we act like stuffed shirts, has the effect of reordering our desires, of changing our affections, our priorities are turned upside down. When we realize that we are the treasure in the field that Jesus gave up everything to go and get. That we are the pearl of great price that Jesus the merchant sold all that he had in order to go and obtain. When we begin to see that story, that love, it makes us want to follow God with a sort of reckless abandon the sort of abandon that leaves behind the projects where we try to project ourselves in hypocrisy, where we try to create our own meaning and create our own identities instead of receiving the identity that Jesus has given us. It makes us want to hunger and thirst after his word and his spirit. It makes us turn to him in humility because we know that what he has done for us is nothing we could ever merit. Beloved, the creator of the world loved you so much that he sent his beloved son to rescue you. Beloved, the son loved you so much that he gave up his life that you might be made whole, that your sins might be forgiven and you might be reconciled to God. Beloved, the Spirit loves us so much that he applies us this to our hearts and promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. Let us live in light of that sort of love. And may it cause us to donate all those stuffed shirts to goodwill. Let's pray.